So this, this morning, I want to talk on a topic of holiness. And I want to say, and I, and I, I title it as, is it legalism or holy conviction? Holiness. What is it? Now, last week, we talked on a, a very uh, direct question. Last week, the question was, is heaven really for you? Is heaven really for you? In other words, are you living your life today that is preparing you for heaven? And the, pre- and the preposition was this, that if, if you have to make a significant change of lifestyle to be able to live in heaven, then chances are you're not going to heaven. If you're not living your life right now in service to the king, if you're not living your life right now in his presence and wanting to be in his presence and wanting to serve the king and wanting to be all that he has for you right now, then what's going to change the moment that you die? You see, we're not going to go through a big conversion process of our attitude or of our desires or of our earthly or of our, of our spiritual nature. We're just going to go through a transformation from an earthly body into a heavenly body. And it should be as easy as walking from one room to another room. And we shouldn't have to make a significant lifestyle change to get there. Now, that doesn't mean you're perfect. That's not what I'm saying. It just means that your desire is for the Lord. And sometimes we can take a look at those um, kind of sermons and those kind of messages or those kind of thoughts and we can make that to be so difficult or so impossible living that we don't know how we're going to do that so that is not the lord speaking by the way that's the devil bringing all those kinds of questions and confusion so this morning i want to talk a little bit more about that and i want to talk about holiness and i want to talk about is it is it to live a holy life is it a legalistic life or is it a life based on holy conviction and what's the difference And so I hope that we can get through this and understand God's goodness here. And I think it's important that we, we first of all, recognize that that as the Lord asks us to live a life of holiness, two things. First of all, understand that he's always asking us to do things that are in our best interest. He would never ask you to do something that isn't for your good. And the second thing is, he won't ask you to do something that he won't empower you to be able to do. As difficult as it may seem, if we trust in God and spend time and focus on who Jesus is, he will give us the power to do what we need to do to live a holy life. He wouldn't ask us something that's not good for us, nor would he ask us to do something that he would empower us to do. But we have some responsibilities in the process. So this morning, I hope that we can make that challenge and we can give some answers along the way. Our text this morning is found in Matthew chapter 7. Verses 13 and 14. It says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you now in Jesus' name. And God, I'm just asking that you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, enable the word to be spoken as you would have it to be spoken. God, I pray that the hearts and minds are open. Lord, that we would see and glean from the truth this morning that you have in your word. And I pray that we would not be distracted. I pray, Father, that I would be a clear messenger as much as possible. And I pray that your word spoken in Jesus' name. Amen. These kind of messages can give us some angst. And they can give us some challenges. And even they can be offensive to us a little bit. And so I'm praying that we do not be offended 
by a message like this or a passage like this, but we see really what these passages are intended to be saying. Let's take a look at this for a minute and and see what this passage might be speaking to us. First of all, it's identifying two different gates and two different roads, meaning that we have choices to make in our life. And we need to consciously choose which path we're going to go down, which gate we're going to go in, and which life, which path we're going to choose. It's a choice for us. Do we go left or right? Do we go through the narrow gate or the wide gate? Do we make good choices or do we make poor choices? See, those are the types of responsibilities that we have as we walk through this life, that we do have choices in our life. Otherwise, why would God give us scriptures like this that say there are two different kinds of gates? There's a wide gate and a narrow gate. There's a narrow road and a wide road. Why? Well, why do you suppose the gate is identified as narrow and not just a normal gate? What's special about narrow? Well, let's talk about that for a minute because narrow indicates that it's wide enough to get through but narrow enough to call it narrow. (laughs) What does narrow mean? Basically, it's wide enough for one belief system but not wide enough for two. It's wide enough that we would believe in Jesus Christ as our King and our Savior, that we would believe in the blood of Christ. But it's not wide enough for man-made or devil-inspired false religions. It is wide enough just for one interpretation, and that is who Jesus Christ is. So it's a narrow gate. It's also narrow because there's only room in that gate for one person at a time. Each one of us come to that saving knowledge personally. You don't come as a member of your family. You don't come because your parents are Christians. You don't come because your wife or husband is a Christian. There are no coattail Christians. It is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So it's only wide enough for one person at one time to come through where you then claim your personal responsibility and your personal redemption and your personal salvation with Jesus Christ. So the the gate is narrow, but, but then it says, but wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Wide, what's the wide gate signify? Well, the wide gate is that this is the, this is the gate that's easy to get through. That many forms of beliefs are found passing through this gate. Many different people get through it thinking things that aren't true because it is wide enough to accept all kinds of false interpretations and false belief systems. And then once through it, the road is wide and easy to walk. At least that's the impression that we have from the world. That the enemy would tell us it's an easy road to walk. But how many of us here this morning that have been on that wide road can tell you right now through past experiences that it's not easy? That there's a lot of baggage that comes. There's a lot of heartache that comes. There's a lot of... um, There's a lot of consequences that come from living on a wide and easy road that seemingly is so easy. It may be fun. It may have some pleasures for a while. But ultimately, the road that's wide and easy at the end of the day is not a fun road. It's not an easy road. The enemy tells us that it is, but that's the lies that the enemy brings to us. See, living for our own carnal desires may appear at the outset to be fun and easy. But the reality of it is that it's not. That's just 
state the facts for what it is. It's fun and easy for the moment. It also, it's wide because there are many people on that road. Many are on this road, so it seems that it's the right road to take. The majority of the people are on that road. Therefore, it seems let's just fall in behind the group and let's just follow that wide road because, hey, this many people can't be wrong. Right? How many times have you justified some things in your life because how many people can do this and not be wrong? It's tempting to go with the flow rather than stand against what seemingly everyone else believes. It's so tempting to go with the easiness of the flow of the popular opinion. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Wow. That narrow road, let's talk about that narrow road for a minute. That narrow road is leading to life where the wide road is leading to destruction. And that narrow road is leading to life and few find it. What does that mean when it says few find it? It means that it's sparsely traveled. It means that there's not as many people on the narrow road as there are on the wide road. What does that tell you about this road? It says a number of things. It says that being a true Bible-believing and God-fearing Christian, I mean one that really follows Jesus Christ, that he's not going to be the most popular traveler. You're not going to be the, the most popular guy, potentially, because you're not on the wide road. You're a lone traveler in many cases. This person may have to go where others aren't comfortable going, and it may seem like you're the only one on the road. You may have to make a choice that others aren't making because you're on the narrow road. You may have to make some hard choices in life that go against popular opinion. You may even be laughed at and made to feel a little peculiar because it may not look like you have many friends. Am I talking to anybody here? Has anybody been down that path before? Has anybody been there and know what that's like? You may have to choose time and time again the less popular way. And you might, you might find yourself asking somewhere, sometimes along the road, is it worth it? Is it worth it to be apart? Is it worth it to stand apart from other people? We're going to answer that question a little bit later. But let me ask this question. Are you comfortable with that definition of Christian living? Are you comfortable with that? Or does your spirit kind of rise up to say, no, that's not the way Christian living that I want to live. I, I want to live the popular kind. Well, this leads us to the discussion of holiness and the questions that arise with it. Is holiness le living a legalistic lifestyle or is it one of holy conviction? Legalism is a big topic. What's the difference between living a legalistic lifestyle or one of holy conviction? What's the difference? Let me, tell, let me make a comment here just on convictions here before we go any further. A conviction is more than just having the discipline to live by a conviction as there are many religious forms that live very convicted lifestyles. A Buddhist monk, for example, lives by a lot of convictions, very disciplined in his lifestyle. So I'm not, I'm not just talking about living by convictions. I'm talking about living by holy convictions. Convictions that are mandated in God's word. Convictions that come through an understanding of what God's expectations are of a man. 
So let's move on to that question. But before I can answer that question, I want to give you a number of scriptures here that tell us what God expects from us as we live in a relationship to God. What does God expect of a man? Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1. Love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands always. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 4. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him. Serve him and hold fast to him. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 10. Obey the Lord your God and follow his commands and decrees that I give you today. 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 13. The Lord warned, warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants the prophets. Second Chronicles chapter 14, verse 4. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and to obey his laws and commands. Now, there are some here thinking, Mike, this, that's old, old Testament stuff. That's Old Testament stuff. But let me give you a couple from the New Testament. John chapter 14, verses 23 and 24. Jesus replied, this is Jesus speaking. Remember the grace giver? That's what, that's what, what does he say to us? Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. For, anyone obeys, for, for if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. All right, is that enough scripture? Have I just proven the point that God has certain expectations for you? Is there any question here that God has an expectation that we are to obey God and to love him through our obedience? You see, obedience is a form of love. Hear me. Obedience is a form of love. With obedience, we prove our love. Obedience is a byproduct of love. What comes first, obedience or love? What comes first, obedience or love? Well, Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So were you obedient before Christ died? Or were you a sinner when Christ died? Christ died for the sinner. Christ died for us. Why? Because he loves us. Love comes before obedience. You don't gain love by being obedient. Rather, you prove love by being obedient. Obedient is a byproduct of love. Obedience is a byproduct. 
So again, the question I'm asking this morning, are we to live a legalistic life or a life of holy conviction? Dr. Kent Hughes says in his book, Disciplines of a Godly Man, he says, quote, There is a universe of difference between the motivations behind legalism and discipline. Legalism says, I will do this thing to gain merit with God. While discipline, or holy conviction, says, I will do this because I love God and want to please Him. Legalism is man-centered. Discipline, or holy conviction, is God-centered. Now, how do we do this? How do we do this? Understanding that God is clearly calling His children to live a life of holiness means that we need to understand how to do that without falling into the trap of legalism. Because being a legalistic Christian is something that we can do very easily. That's the, more natu- that's the more natural way of being a Christian is through a legalistic approach. How do we do this? Well, I want to talk a little bit more about that. Another author that I read, his name is Mike Brown. He gives us this description of the difference between holiness and legalism. Let me read this. Quote, holiness is beautiful. Legalism is binding. Holiness brings life. Legalism brings death. They are as different as night and day, and yet at first glance they can seem similar because they both stand against sinful behavior and call for holy living. How can we distinguish between the two? Legalism is rules without relationship, emphasizing standards more than the Savior and laws more than love. It is a system based on fear and characterized by joyless judgmentalism, producing futility instead of freedom. Of course, it is absolutely true that God has very high standards. And for anyone honestly reading the word, there can be no doubt that he calls us to live by very high standards in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, in our attitudes, in our sexuality, in our families, in our relationships, and much, much more. See, there's no question that God calls us to high standards of living. No question about that. We just read numerous of scriptures that identified that. But what happens in the translation of reading God's word and in the application of it is what leads to a life that is unholy and displeasing to the Lord. This is where the devil gets in. Unfortunately, he gets involved, as he usually does, when he adds, in, when he adds his influence into the mix. And this is where people get hurt. This is where godly living and um, what God has set for us gets twisted by the enemy into uh, taking the good thing and twisting it so that it becomes a bad thing. That's what the devil's known for. You know that? He doesn't create things. He twists things. He twists God's goodness into something that would be considered wrong. He twists the conviction to live a holy life into a legalistic lifestyle. What is legalism? Legalism is the excessive and improper use of the law. This legalism can take different forms. Number one, The first is where a person attempts to keep the law in order to attain salvation. Number two, the second uh, form of legalism is where a person keeps the law in order to maintain his salvation. Number three is when a Christian judges other Christians for not keeping certain codes of conduct that he thinks needs to be observed. Legalism is very damaging to the kingdom of God. In order for our lives not to fall into the trap of legalism, we must understand, however, that when God gives us the command to do something, he fills it with the command to do something different. 
It's so important that we understand that when God says no to something, he doesn't want to make your life a void. Rather, he wants to fill it with a do. He wants to fill it with something else. He just doesn't take your joy and the fun of living away by taking you from that sensuous lifestyle and then leave you with nothing. No, he wants to fill it with joy unspeakable. He wants to fill it with something so much more than what he supposedly has taken away. Colossians chapter 2, verse 5 through 7. For though I am absent from you in body, this is Paul speaking to the, to the church in Colossus, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See, we just aren't taking and taking away and filling with nothing. Rather, he's filling with a lifestyle of rootedness and faithfulness so that you are overflowing with thankfulness, that you are overflowing with godly purposes. Let's read on in Colossians 8. See to, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than Christ. He's warning about legalism. He's warning here that you are not taken captive to, by hollow and deceptive philosophies called legalism that take away God's goodness and don't fill it up with anything else. But rather than having a life void and without foundation that legalism brings, Christ fills us with righteousness. Colossians 9 and 10, just the next two verses. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. You see, when God takes something, or when he says no to something in your life called sexual sin or any other perversion, he fills you up with something else that would be better for you, called purity and holiness and no regrets and no bad consequences. See, this sounds to me like when I think of something in a natural a legalistic lifestyle is filled with the hollowness of man's traditions and man-made rules like a sinkhole. Do you know what a sinkhole is? Do you know what a sinkhole is? Larry, let's show them what a sinkhole is. Sinkholes can strike young and old, rich and poor. They can and do hit any country on earth. In the U.S., modern building codes limit the damage. In the third world, the destruction can be catastrophic. On May 30, 2010, rains from Tropical Storm Agatha pelted Central America. In Guatemala City, severe flooding triggered this monster hole. Collapsed roads and bridges slowed rescue efforts. Building after building crumbled. By the time the storm was over, almost 200 people had lost their lives. Geologist Drew Glassbrenner has seen what happens when people forget that the Earth is a dynamic organism. People take for granted that the ground they're standing on is solid and not going to fall away from underneath them. The voids that cause the sinkholes in the limestone happen slowly, but the failure of the soils to bridge them or sometimes the rock to bridge them over top of them can happen very quickly. And when those happen and they collapse into the void, the overlying soils fall out 
and that can happen on a scale of minutes instead of thousands of years. And once the ground is that vulnerable, anything can trigger a collapse, from heavy rain to the weight of a person or vehicle. In Florida and other sinkhole-prone areas, that's a possibility at, at any time. Sinkholes are a form of legalism in a Christian's life. You see, because the sinkhole looks good from the top, right? You don't know the sinkhole is there because it's grass-covered or, or concrete-covered or even a house is sitting on it. Nobody knows what's under the foundation of the sinkhole until what? Until it collapses. You see, when you have a life of legalism, what you're really doing is that you're, you're, you're taking away the foundation of God's Word and you're taking all the don'ts and the don'ts are pulling away, pulling away, and pulling away and never filling it up with goodness. See, in Luke, it talks about the man that was uh, delivered of demons. And the demons were cast out of the man's life and if that life isn't filled up with the goodness of God... That demon then goes and gets seven others that are worse and come back into that man's life and fill that man's life up so that man is worse off than he was before he was delivered from the first demons. So it's so important that we fill our life with God's word and God's instruction called holy convictions and not just be living a life of legalistic demands. That's a sinkhole because you're taking the foundation of God's word away and you might look good from the surface, you might look really good from the top, but it's just a matter of time. And what was interesting about that geologist is he said that it happens slowly. The degrading of the, pers- of the ground happens slowly, and it's happening, and, nobody, and nobody's even realizing it's happening. A life of legalism is destroying a person slowly, and you don't even know it's really happening until there's pressure applied. A car runs over the road, a house is built, or somebody walks on the street, or whatever happens, and all of a sudden there's too much pressure than a surface can hold, and a sinkhole occurs. How many Christian lives have we seen destroyed because the foundation was, was taken away slowly, and then pressure happens, and there's a snap, and all of a sudden we lose it? Legalism is a, is a trap, and it's a sinkhole. Going back to Mike Brown, he tells us a little bit more about sinkholes and legalists. Tragically, legalists, despite their best intentions, get things terribly wrong. First, they try to change a person from the outside in, whereas God deals with us from the inside out. Second, they fail to present a balanced picture of the Lord, putting too little stress on his mercy and too much emphasis on his wrath. Third, they do not point the struggling sinner or the believer to the Lord's supernatural empowerment, making holiness a matter of human effort alone. Finally, they add laws, standards, commandments, customs, and traditions that are not found in the Word, making those things even more important than the biblical biblical commandments themselves. He goes on to say, In contrast, true scriptural holiness begins with the heart and flows from an encounter with God and His Word. It calls for repentance and response to the Lord's gracious offer of salvation, and it offers a way to be holy, the blood of Jesus and the Spirit of God. Biblical holiness is free, although it requires discipline and perseverance. For the legalist, nothing is free. Everything must be earned. That's why legalism leads to bondage, and holiness leads to liberty. See, in my life's experience, I was brought up 
no fault of my parents or my generations preceding me, but I was brought up in a legalistic environment. I was brought up in a holiness-based church where when people would say, what do you believe, Mike? I would believe I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't go to movies, I don't go to dances, I don't play cards, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls that do. You know, that was basically what my motto was. And they said, well, what do you believe? I said, I just told you. It was all based on the don'ts without any explanation of the whys. What kind of spirit does that breed? It bred in me rebellion. It bred in me a quiet deviant that I knew what to say when I was around Christian people, but I lived my life the way I wanted to when I wasn't around Christian people. I knew how to get around the system because I knew enough about how to be a Christian by form, but in reality I was a sinkhole because I wasn't filling my life with the foundation of God's word as to why. And that is a life of legalism, not holy conviction. It's like putting a sign on a door or a wall that says, wet paint, don't touch. What's the first thing you want to do? What's the first thing you've done? Come on, who else, who's, who's touched the paint? Yeah, we've all touched the paint. You, just, you put a sign up that just says don't, and you're going to do it. But if they would say, hey, this is oil-based paint, and if you get it on your fingers, it's not coming off. All of a sudden, you might not touch it. Or if they would say, this is really an important wall, please don't put a fingerprint in it. You might not touch it if you get some explanation along with the command. But our basic nature is that we just want to do what we're told not to do. A person that knows or learns how to live by conviction towards holiness is one that is taught why it's important not to do something or why it's important to do something because they've been educated. The difference is an education process. He can give a solid answer to someone that explains why he doesn't do what he does. And here's the thing, guys. It takes work to be educated. It takes work and it takes effort to know why I do or know why I don't do something. It takes getting into God's Word and learning it. It takes being taught it. Parents, this is where it's hard. It's so easy just to say no because I told you so. But it takes effort to get in and say, no, I, I, I don't want you to do that. Now let's talk about why. Let's talk about why we don't do this particular thing. You know what that's called? Parenting. You know what that's called? Discipleship. Let me go back to Mike Brown again, what he tells us about this. He says, unfortunately, the moment you preach biblical holiness, many Christians put their hands over their ears and say, that's legalism, that's condemnation, that's man-made religion, that's the dead letter of the law. You won't put me in bondage. I won't listen to stuff like that. As Robert Bremstead observed, the idea of living strictly by what the Bible says has been branded as legalism. That's the human prediction of it. That's, what, that's what's happening in our culture, that those that are living by a godly standard are branded as being legalists. And so, quoting again, and so these Christians run from the dangerous clutches of legalism and fall into the deadly grasp of license or liberty. That self-deceived state of fleshly liberty catering to their carnality rather than crucifying it. What a terrible error. The difference here 
is the effort and the willingness to be taught the reason behind, behind God's command or instruction is to helping us to live according to his commands and instructions. Now, we've gone over a lot of information that is educational. But let's bring it down to a little bit more application-oriented here. Let's, let's look at something and try to apply this principle to maybe something in our life that really might have an issue, okay? There are some of God's topics and God's words that are very basic and very easy to see his clear direction. And then there are those in God's word that are more gray, more up for interpretation a little bit. Let's look at one, first of all, that's very clear in God's command. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse, eight, verse 18, it says this, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. So verse 6, verse six the, the 18th chapter, I'm sorry, the 18th verse says, Flee from sexual immorality. Flee. What does flee mean? Flee means get on your horse and go the other direction. It does not mean put on your spiritual armor and stand against it. It does not mean that try your best and work through it. It does not mean that you can take, you can take control over it and you can manage it. See, there's so many things in God's word that are manageable and are things we have to take our stand against. But this particular topic is very clear. It says flee from sexual immorality. This is a clear and direct command. Turn around, run away as fast as you can because no man can stand and manage pornography. No man can stand and manage what goes into his mind and goes into his eyes and he can manage it through a Christian walk. Once it's there, it's there. So the Bible says flee that. Very direct command, very direct instruction. If you're having a problem with this, shut off the TV. Don't watch TV unattended. If, you're, if you have a problem with the internet, don't get on the internet unattended. Bring the computer out in the living room so everybody can see what sites you're on. Don't intentionally walk by the magazine racks at the gas stations that lure your eyes over to those pornographic images. See, there's some, there's some practical applications to how do we flee this. Don't flirt with the woman at work. Don't flirt guys in campus on high school or college campuses or girls. Don't, don't put yourself in situations that are going to compromise this thing because the Bible doesn't say deal with it. The Bible doesn't say manage it. The Bible says flee it. Turn around and run away. I think you catch my drift on that one. That's pretty clear, isn't it? But what about those areas that are a little less, a little less clear? Those areas that are a little less black and white. First Corinthians chapter six, verse twelve. It tells us, Paul says, "I have the right to do anything." You say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. See, Paul is now getting us into the gray area of life that maybe there are some things that I can do, but is it beneficial for me to do? Is it leading me to more holiness, or is it leading me to a potential compromise in my lifestyle? This is where it's important to to know the difference between holy conviction and legalism. See, understand that God's perfect will 
in our life is always perfect. <laughs> he always wants the best thing for my life. And the compromises that I would come up with would take me less than what God's perfect will would be. He always wants me to do the things that are perfect. And sometimes, though, that the life-controlling habits and addictions that we're struggling with are a result of our choices that bring us out of the God's perfect will. Now, I know I'm speaking to a different variety of people here. Some of us have already made those poor choices. Some of us are already trapped in life-controlling addictions. There's hope. There's hope for you to get out of those if you want to. There's hope. But for those here this morning that haven't made those choices yet, here's, here's my best instruction. Don't even start. Don't even play with it. Don't even begin to exercise it. Don't even begin to bring it into your life. Those things that you may not consider a sin, just don't even play with it. You know where it's taken. You know, if, it, if you don't know where it's going to take you, look around our society and see where different things have taken it and then, then ask yourself the question, is that the risk I want to take? Is that the path that I might want to go down? You talk to an alcoholic that's struggling with alcohol, and he'll say the worst decision he ever made was taking his first drink. Not his last one, his first one. You won't be, you'll never become an alcoholic if you never take that first drink. You'll never have to deal with a pregnancy if you don't have sex. Not safe sex, sex. Come on, can we just make things clear and make a good, solid, holy conviction decision? That's not legalism. That's a holy conviction that we live by. Now, I know that the Bible is not clear in some areas. Is it a sin or not a sin? You know, um, those are some things I think that we just have to deal with. I, I have my convictions. Maybe they're not going to be your convictions. But I'm basing my convictions on God's word for my life. And I would encourage you all to get into God's word and come up with your convictions that are based on God's principles, not based on your desires. See, we can all read God's word and make it, we can twist it a little bit, we can spin it a little bit to say what we want it to say. But can we take the Bible literally? Can we take it to be its literal meaning and not try to twist it to match my desire or my, the way I want to read it so that I can justify my actions? I have my own personal convictions of drinking that, again, I will not tell you that it's a sin or not a sin. But I will tell you that drunkenness is a sin. The Bible's very clear about drunkenness. The question is, what defines drunkenness? My personal conviction is, I don't drink. I think it's wrong for me to drink. I don't know about you, but I will encourage you, though, to get in and study God's Word and make your own personal conviction so that when you get to a point of decision, that the decision's already made to say, no, thank you, I don't drink. Don't make it in the heat of the temptation. <laughs> if you wait to develop your holy conviction to the wait to the moment of temptation, let me tell you, you're going to struggle. You're going to weigh the options. You're going to look at the popular ones and the not popular ones, and chances are you're going to fall to the popular domain. I, you know why I know that? Because I've done it. Because I've lived it. Because I haven't always been a holy conviction type person. I was a legalistic person. And when I was legalistic, I did things without knowing why. And therefore, when the pressures came, I didn't know what to stand on. I went with the easy solution. And many times I made the wrong choices. 
And I'm encouraging you this morning that while you have the opportunity to study up God's word and make your holy convictions now while you can make them logically and soundly. Young people, when you get into a dating relationship, know how far you're going to go. And when it goes any further, stop it. (laughs) Don't go any further than what you've already predetermined before you got started. It's called discipline. Just make it easier on yourself. I can remember when I was in the business world, and I would go out, and I entertained a lot of couple, a lot of people. I sold the Ford Motor Company, and I did a lot of stuff, and I did a lot of entertaining. And it, was, it would have been very easily for me to fall into a lifestyle at work and a lifestyle at home and a lifestyle at church. But, you know, I decided early on it was a lot easier not having to make a decision then on the moment to think, well, if I have a drink right now, first of all, where am I at? Who's going to see me? And is it going to get back to my wife? Is it going to get back to my pastor? Am I going to be, can I sneak this one in or not? You know what it became? It became a lot easier for me, for me just to say, no, thank you. I don't drink. I, I don't need it. If I needed it, then I have a problem. But if I don't need it, it became very easy for me, for me to say, no, thank you. I will have a soda. I'll have a Sprite. I'll have a 7-Up. I'll have a glass of water. I don't need that. And it made my life so much easier. It, it reduced the complexity of my life significantly because I didn't have to analyze and judge where I was at and was it going to be the right or the wrong decision at the time. No, it was the right decision for me to say, no, thank you, all the time. And you know what? I didn't struggle with that. At, once I made that decision, I never struggled with it again. It just became easy. And the, e- the more I said it, the easier it became. And people looked at me as kind of weird sometimes. I'll admit that. I got some weird looks. I did. But, you know, I had more opportunities later on by people that would watch my life and say, later on, all by myself, all by themselves. They wouldn't do it in a public world necessarily. But sometimes they would come up to me later and say, what's different about you? Man, what an opening for the gospel. But if I would have gone in with them, if I would have gone that wide and easy road, there never would have been a reason for them to ask what's different about me. Jackie, if you would come this morning. My proposition today is that when we teach our children good decision-making based on a holy conviction, we will have a lot more success with them than by just saying yes or no without a biblical and sound common-sense decision. The more I can educate my children, the more I can get them in the Word, the more that I can show them by my example of my life, the more likely they're going to make good decisions as well. The more time I spend educating and investing in myself in good, solid biblical instruction, the more likelihood that I will live a life that is pleasing to the Lord as well. See, the extreme other side of this controversy of legalism and holy conviction, again, Mike Brown points it out, and he says, and so these Christians run from the dangerous clutches of legalism and fall into the, de- the deadly grasp of license. See, if we can't handle the legalistic, if we can't handle the holy conviction side, if we say it's too hard, I can't even begin to deal with it, then they'll go the opposite extreme into saying that everything is good. I live under an era of grace. Therefore, I can do anything and God will forgive me. Is that right? Do you see anything in God's word that says that? 
That's a whole other topic, a whole other sermon. I'm not going to get into that, but I will tell you right now that when you get into God's Word and research that, you will find out that you can trample grace. That's a dangerous ground. Guys, that's a sinkhole. You don't know when it's going to open up on you. Wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and holy, only a few find it. Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 25 through 25 tells us this is the result of a holiness lifestyle. This is the result that you'll get if you can live a life of holy conviction. This is what you'll end up with. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Amen. So is your life legalistic? Legalistic? Or can you say that I have holy convictions and I live my life by a conviction that I do or don't do things, not because I can't, because I choose not to, because I want to please my Father in heaven, because love and obedience go together. I love Jesus. I don't want to displease him with anything. I don't want to give anything in my life, any credence that would help, that would cause me to, to displease my Father in heaven. And I don't want to confuse people around me either. I don't want to be that stumbling block. No, I don't do things, but I don't do them for the right reasons. I don't do them because I have a holy conviction. Amen. Close your eyes with me if you would. Father, I just thank you. I just thank you for your word. I thank you, Jesus, that you can be so definite. And I thank you, Lord, in the times when we have the areas that are gray, black or not quite as black, not quite as white. God, but I thank you, God, that you still bring to me a level of conviction that is based on what is best. What is the best thing for me? And I know that all you want for me is the best. You don't want me to go halfway. You don't want me to compromise. So, Lord, I pray that that would settle into our hearts this morning. God, that our lives would be full of holy conviction, that we would stand on God's word and we would decide right now the things that are in those subtle areas of life. We'd say, God, would you just lead me to be more holy? Would you make me to be more peculiar? Would you put me on that road that is not highly traveled? Can I be strong enough not to, not to fall into temptation? Can I be strong enough to stand up against peer pressure? Not because it's legalistic. No, God, because I understand the significance of holy conviction and I want to live my life based on that to please you. Now, Father, I pray as we go to our homes today, as we go to the potluck next door, as we go to have this fellowship time, Lord, that this message would ring true in our hearts and lives today and that it would go beyond the walls of this church and that as we walk through our days, God, I pray that you would bring through the power of the Holy Spirit, bring it back to remembrance when I have a question, when I have a temptation, when I have a choice to make, would I make the right one based upon the right reasons? I pray your authority in Jesus' name.